I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we discuss the state of the Second Amendment to the Constitution in the aftermath of the tragic shooting in Las Vegas. In the wake of the tragedy, renewed attention has come to the controversy about the constitutional status of guns in the United States and the role of the Second Amendment. And joining us to discuss this crucial, central, and important question are two of America's leading scholars of the Second Amendment. Saul Cornell is the Paul and Diane Gunther Chair in American History at Fordham University. He's an expert on American legal history and has written several books about the history of the Second Amendment, including A Well-Regulated Militia, the Founding Fathers, and the Origins of Gun Control. Nelson Lund is university professor at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. He's written extensively on the Second Amendment, including articles such as The Second Amendment and the Unalienable Right to Self-Defense. He's also the co-author with Adam Winkler of UCLA of the Interactive Constitution's Explainers on the Second Amendment. Nelson Saul, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Nelson, let's begin with you. You did write with Adam the common statement about the core meaning of the Second Amendment, and I always read to school groups and citizens your joint statement uh, that implicit in the debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists were two shared assumptions. First, the proposed new Constitution gave the federal government almost total legal authority over the army and militia. Second, that the federal government should not have any authority at all to disarm the citizenry. They disagreed only about whether an armed populace could adequately deter federal oppression. Tell us more about that statement and sum up as concisely as you can what you and Adam agreed was the core consensus historical meaning of the Second Amendment. Well, I think that the uh, the important thing that's often overlooked by people who haven't looked at this carefully is that the Second Amendment was originally a federalism provision, like every other part of the Bill of Rights, it applied only to the federal government, thereby leaving the states free to regulate weapons as they saw fit. And the really difficult questions that come up about interpreting uh, the Second Amendment only arose when the courts decided to begin applying the Bill of Rights against the states. But originally, it was really quite clear that the federal government just did not have power or authority under the Constitution to uh, to disarm American citizens or impose what we would call uh, gun control today. Thanks so much for that, Saul. You've written about the Anti-Federalists as well as the Second Amendment, and you've recently inspired me to reread your book, Anti-Federalism and the Dissenting Tradition in American History. Uh, do you agree or disagree with Nelson's statement that the Second Amendment was primarily a federalism provision, and, and what do you think its core historic purpose was? Well, actually, I, I do agree that the, the the central issue on the table was 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 federalism. Uh, I think that one of the hardest things we have today to grapple with is that the right that most Americans are concerned about today, uh, the right of individual self-defense, was a principle that was well established under common law. So, therefore, one of the reasons that we don't actually see much discussion of an individual right in the modern sense in the ratification debates is it simply wasn't an issue. If you think about uh, John Adams, who defended the Boston massacre uh, soldiers, he made an argument uh, in that case to an American jury 
and basically uh, acquitted most of those soldiers by arguing the right of self-defense. So it seems to me the right of self-defense, the issue that seems to be at the center of the modern debate, was just a settled issue in the 18th century. So therefore, the, the Second Amendment was about something quite different. Uh, it had to do with the dangers of standing armies. It had to do with the danger of uh, federalizing state militias. And it had to do with the awesome power to check the federal government by the use of state militias, a power that made was up for grabs in the early republic, but which after the Civil War really no longer made much sense. Thanks for that. So, so Nelson, uh, uh, Saul just said that he agrees that at its core it was a federalism provision, but questions whether it also included notions of self-defense. Do you believe that the Second Amendment originally did include notions of self-defense, and what's the relevance of that history today? Well, I'm not sure that I disagree with exactly what Saul just said, but I would say that the the right, um, the natural right or inherent right of self-defense uh, is and was then considered to be both an individual right and a kind of collective right in the sense that uh, the people were understood to have uh, the right to defend themselves against um against tyranny. And the two things were always linked, going all the way back to John Locke, William Blackstone, and the founders. There are many uh, things you can find in the in the early history uh, in Congress, for example, where people expressly linked those two things together. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a, it's a historical mistake to, to give them the kind of sharp separation that sometimes uh, done today. They were linked in the minds of the founders very, very, very closely. Th- th- thanks for that. So, Saul, how, how much hangs on this historically? On, on the interactive constitution, you can see that two out of the original 13 state constitutions from which the Second Amendment drew do declare an individual right of self-defense. Uh, Pennsylvania and Vermont say that individuals have a right for the defense of themselves or for purposes of killing game. The other 11 talk more of a collective right of state militias, but by the time of Reconstruction, as Akilah Mar has argued, the Second Amendment seemed to sound more in self-defense. Does this debate matter much for modern purposes, or or, are judges really just disagreeing about the appropriate balance between the need for public safety and the right of self-defense? Well, I think with any constitutional question, and with the Second Amendment in particular, one can ask questions, what did a particular constitutional provision mean to various Americans at different uh, distinct historic moments? whether it's the founding era, whether it's the Reconstruction era. Then one can ask questions about what Americans today think a particular provision means. And then you can ask, what is the state of the interpretation of the particular provision in the courts? And one of the problems, I think, in this debate is we tend to sort of blend all these distinct things together and take a little bit from one, take a little bit from another, and sort of create our own vision of the Second Amendment. And I think for analytical purposes, it's very helpful to get each of those things uh, distinct, get it right, and then once you have your answer to those different questions, ask yet another question, which is, which theory of constitutional interpretation uh, do we want to apply when we interpret this part of our constitutional tradition? I mean, you, you know, you get very different views of the Second Amendment uh, if you use an originalist model, or one, there are actually several originalist models. Uh, even in Heller, we saw two different originalist models. You use one by Stevens and one by Scalia, and a very different model if you use a living constitution uh, interpretation. In fact, the great irony, I think, and it's an irony that 
a number of scholars have pointed out, perhaps most uh, notably uh, Cass Sunstein and, and Reva Siegel, that actually the best arguments for the modern uh, gun rights, individual rights position are not originalists. They're actually living constitution arguments. I mean, I think if you ask most Americans, what does the Second Amendment mean? They will tell you it's an individual right and it's linked to self-defense. But that's not an originalist argument. That's a living constitution argument. Nelson, what's your what's your response to that? Well, point? I just disagree with that. I think the original meaning is that it is, an, that it is an, an individual right. The Second Amendment created an individual right for federalist purposes. It's an individual right not to be uh, disarmed by the federal government. So I, I just disagree with that. I think the strongest arguments in favor of um, roughly what I think about the Second Amendment are based on a combination of originalism with respect to the Second Amendment and a much more complicated view of the Fourteenth Amendment um, that's been adopted uh, by the courts. And there's obviously historical evidence to support um, the proposition that the Second Amendment and other parts of the Bill of Rights were incorporated against the states by the Fourteenth Amendment, but it's a very murky area. Um, and the strongest argument for sticking with it is that we now have decades and decades of judicial precedent uh, that's built up around that idea, which may not be in perfectly and absolutely certain, uh, but is, is, is a reasonable interpretation of the background of the 14th Amendment. Thanks for that. So, so Saul, ju- ju- what is your view of what the strict originalist uh, interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, says, and what are the implications for regulations today? Well, the first thing I should say is I should probably actually push back. Uh, again, I have great respect uh, for Nelson's uh, work. The the article he wrote about uh, uh, Heller uh, in a book that I edited is, is just superb. And I, of course, I have great respect for Adam Winkler's work as well. But I do think it's a mistake to argue that uh, the one thing the Second Amendment precludes is disarmament. I think that needs to be qualified. We know for a fact that both the states and the federal government engaged in pretty major uh, large-scale disarmament of the uh, Tories in, in, in the period of the American Revolution. Uh, you had to sign a loyalty oath in most places or you were disarmed. So uh, the notion that somehow the Second Amendment is uh, a barrier to disarmament is actually historically not accurate. In fact, the the, the assumption uh, was that you had to be a loyal citizen uh, or you could not exercise a right to own a gun. So that actually creates something of a conflict between the sort of right to own a gun for self-defense or hunting or, or pest control and the right to bear arms. Because in Pennsylvania in particular, there was large-scale disarmament of parts of the population uh, and that um, was absolutely necessary in the view of the revolutionaries, or they wouldn't have been able to, uh, you know, emerge victorious. Nelson, your response to that uh, argument? I am, that... I am simply not aware of any federal law. I've never seen a federal law that disarmed Tories. So, I mean, I'd be glad to learn about that, but I just have never heard of such a law. One more beat on this, Saul, and, and you, what's the implication of, of, of all this for uh, the modern debate? Well, um, it seems to me that as long as there have been guns in America, we've had regulation. Uh, in fact, gun regulation has gotten got stronger in the decades after the Second Amendment, not weaker. The notion that the Second Amendment poses any barrier to uh, reasonable 
gun regulation, of course, I think makes no sense. Uh, there's no right in our constitutional tradition that's absolute. Uh, all rights are subject to regulation uh, because the founders, of course, were interested in ordered liberty. They were not interested in licentiousness. They were not interested in anarchy and only in a well-regulated society. That was one of their favorite uh, terms. Could you actually have liberty? So strong government is, in fact, the, the prerequisite for liberty, not its antithesis. And that means gun regulation. So, Nelson, in your separate statement in the interactive Constitution, you say that the Second Amendment requires courts to draw lines, balancing the needs for public safety and order with the right to self-defense. But you say, as in the First Amendment, uh, individual freedom is, should generally be protected unless the government can make a strong case it has a real need to suppress uh, speech or expressive conduct. I, I, I guess, my before we get into the question of where the balance should be struck, since both sides agree that there should be balancing just how much of this balancing turns on history? How much should our listeners uh, care about whether at its founding the Second Amendment was more about self-defense or about co collective security? And, 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 and how much is it just a matter of where you strike the balance? Well, I think almost nothing uh, prior to the Civil War hangs on this at all uh, because the, the founding generation could reasonably have thought that the federal government would never have a need to uh, impose what we think of as gun control today uh, because the states were, had plenary authority to do that. And the fact that the states did that um, doesn't tell us anything new about the meaning of the Second Amendment. So the questions, again, only become difficult once you accept uh, incorporation of the Second Amendment or the right to keep their arms uh, through the 14th Amendment. Uh, that's when it becomes difficult, and that's when uh, and it's because of that that um, lines have to be drawn. We have to have debates about what reasonable lines are and how strictly the courts should scrutinize the lines that legislators draw. So, Saul, I'm, I'm, uh, Kilimar uh, argues that uh, the Second Amendment was clearly considered to be one of the privileges or immunities of citizenship that the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted to incorporate against the states and that they did view it as an individual right. Uh, is Akil correct? And, and if he is, uh, wh why shouldn't the Second Amendment get a kind of strict scrutiny like the First Amendment? Well, the, the, I mean, the first problem is that Akil is uh, only half correct. Uh, there's considerable uh, diversity of opinion about what the Second Amendment means in the era of Reconstruction. There are certainly people who fit the Akilamar model, but there are also people who see the Second Amendment in more traditional militia-based terms. We do have uh, a, v a vast effort to arm uh, militias in the South after they are temporarily disbanded. You have uh, the only case that actually tests the incorporation of the 14th Amendment, or the only two cases, both tested as a militia-based right. Uh, you have U.S. v. Mitchell and you have U.S. v. Cruikshank. Uh, and ironically, of course, you have the state's rights interpretation of the Second Amendment being made by the Democrats. And sadly, of course, they prevail. It's, it's, the, it's, it's not the Republicans who emerge victorious in the courts. It's the much more narrow uh, view of the Second Amendment that the Democrats uh, embraced. And of course, moreover, even the most ardent uh, uh, Reconstruction Republican who favors 
the protecting the rights, particularly of, of freedmen, believes that racially neutral gun regulation is not only constitutional, it's absolutely essential. We forget sometimes that the Republicans in the South were passing pretty uh, restrictive gun laws. We have uh, General Order Number One, which uh, uh, you know underscores that you can ban concealed weapons. We have General Order Number Seven, which prohibits uh, uh, collective. Uh, uh, arming in public, you know, parading and, and drilling with guns. So again, once again, the Reconstructionary Republicans are both uh, sort of pro-gun and pro-regulation. So Nelson, in his article, uh, in the Baffler Gun Anarchy in the Unfree State, Saul uh, makes more of this point and says that the South took the lead in outlawing uh, weapons after the Civil War, which had little utility for a well-regulated militia. Southern courts split on the issue. Some adopted this quasi modern libertarian reading and others have the militia-based view. And he says, outside the South, states took a more restrictive view in Massachusetts, uh, for example, uh, and only allowed um, armed travel to those cases where one faced an imminent danger. So Saul says that it's odd that modern American jurists would take their moral and legal cues from slave-owning judges in the antebellum South. That's the world Heller has bequeathed to us. What do you, what's your response? Well, I don't think that's correct at all. Let me, let me start by saying this. It, it is absolutely true that in, in during the Reconstruction period, there were all kinds of people saying all kinds of different things from all kinds of different perspectives. It's one of the re- and a lot of them were saying it in Congress. So it's one of the reasons that the interpretation of the 14th Amendment um, has always been and will probably always continue to be um, a fertile source of disagreement about, you know, what exactly was going on and what it was meant to, to do at the time. That, that is absolutely true. Um, what, the, what the Army was doing, what the state courts were doing, and so on, is really not particularly relevant to uh, the modern interpretation of the Second Amendment because nobody was yet talking about what we call incorporation in any detail. Um, so that really, it wasn't recognized in the courts for a very long time thereafter. Um, but as long as we're talking about kind of historical anecdotes from that period, uh, let me suggest this one. Um, during that time, a lot of the former Confederate soldiers were formed into militias that were basically being used to terrorize the, the black population. And the Reconstruction Congress uh, wanted to do something about that, and so a bill was drafted um, to disarm the militias uh, in, in, in the southern states. And an objection was made to that, that uh, the Second Amendment does not allow the federal government to disarm anybody. And as a result of that objection, the bill was modified so that it uh, disbanded the militia disbanded the militia organizations, but did not disarm the individuals uh, who composed those organizations. That was, that was one sign of what people thought the Second Amendment itself meant uh, during Reconstruction. Thanks for this. Uh, Saul, is it fair to say that there was enough of a disagreement about what the Reconstruction era meaning is, that the more libertarian reading is at least plausible, and in the end the big question is how to balance uh, security versus the right, or do you think um, more the, the history clearly points in one direction or another? Well, I think one of the complexities about this debate is there. there's enough uh, uh, robust debate, really going back to the 18th century. I mean, for instance, Jefferson's view of the right to bear arms 
was pretty expansive for the 18th century. Similarly, around the time of Reconstruction, you have a very robust uh, range of views about what the right to bear arms would mean. So, you know, the, the problem is not so much that there's no evidence for this libertarian tradition. The real question is, how do we weight it both as a matter of history in terms of understanding our constitutional tradition? And secondly, how do we weight this when we're trying to construct a coherent theory of constitutional interpretation uh, for our future Second Amendment jurisprudence? So uh, it does strike me, uh, particularly in Heller, where there are a number of references to these Southern cases uh, that are mostly, uh, uh, you know, basically done by slave-owning judges. Uh, that's a funny place to go to chart our new Second Amendment jurisprudence, uh, particularly because it ignores what was the norm outside of the South, which is this more uh, well-regulated model of of, of uh, regulating firearms. So the problem with history, of course, is that if you're selective about using it, you can come up with almost, not everything, but almost anything you want. And, and that's been part of the problem in the both the jurisprudence and the scholarship on the Second Amendment is this kind of selective reading of the past to further a particular contemporary policy agenda. Uh, thanks for that. So, so, so Nelson, did did the uh, well? I, 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 what, what I'm hearing both of you saying is there is a debate about the meaning of the Second Amendment, both at the founding and at Reconstruction, and how to balance or combine the more. Uh, militia-based and the more self-defense-based tradition is um, debated by historians. N N Nelson, did... If I, could, if I could interrupt. Yeah. No, there was no debate about the Second Amendment. In fact, the, the Second Amendment was drafted in Congress. It was ratified with almost no debate at all. There just was no debate about that. Th thanks for that. Forgive me. I was trying to sum up what I heard you say about a debate among contemporary historians about the historic meaning oh, of the Second Amendment. Oh, among yes. people today? Exactly. I mean, is oh, it fair? Yes, is it, of course. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So, great. So, so just so listeners understand, Nelson, then, given that debate, do you think that the Supreme Court in Heller basically got it right by saying that the Second Amendment, uh, you know, as glossed through the 14th, is an individual right and that it requires a balancing of uh, the individual liberty and public safety. And Heller recognized a series of laws it considered presumptively lawful, including those which prohibit firearm possession for felons, the mentally ill, and sensitive places like school and government buildings, and restrictions on commercial sale. And then is it just a question of how individual judges strike uh, the balance? Uh, I think the Heller opinion got two very big things right. First is that the Second Amendment right is an individual right. It's not a right of the states to maintain militias. Second, the purpose of the right is to enable individuals to, to exercise their natural or inherent right of self-defense. Those are the two big things, the big threshold questions that Heller addressed that got right. Uh, not much of the rest of the opinion uh, is uh, well done, um, and much of it is very dubious, in my opinion. Well, why don't you just tell us which parts are uh, dubious? Well, let's let's start. I'm just going to kind of list them without going into detail. Um, so, well, let me let me start with with the biggest one of all, which is the issue before the court in the Heller case. Um, the issue was whether 
there is an individual right to keep a handgun in your home for self-defense. And rather than looking at any kind of evidence having to do with originalism or without performing any kind of policy analysis, the court just announced that handguns are very popular, therefore they're protected by the Second Amendment and the District of Columbia cannot outlaw them. There's really no analysis at all. It's just a declaration or what, not much more than what lawyers call an ipsy dixit. Um, then there are all these exceptions uh, to, the, to the Second Amendment that the court announces um, without any analysis or support in originalism. Uh, to some extent, they, they try to, to support some of them with case law and so on, but if you look at the case law, it doesn't really support them. They took a, pre- a 1939 precedent and interpreted it to mean basically the opposite of what it said. I mean, the rest of the opinion is just really pretty much a mess, in my opinion. Thanks for that. So Saul Nelson uh, agreed with the part of Heller that says that the Second Amendment is an individual right and designed to protect this natural right of self-defense, but disagreed with the application to handguns and the exception. What do you think well, of those two just, aspects sorry, of the? Let me just say, I don't necessarily disagree with the conclusion the court drew that, that that law was unconstitutional. I was only commenting on the quality of the analysis. Understood, and, and, and thanks for that clarification. Uh, Saul, what do you think of the two parts of Heller, the historical conclusions and the uh, specific conclusions about what's permitted and what isn't? Well, first of all, I would say that Nelson is absolutely right. The analysis is a mess, and the, the example he gives about handguns is, is, is a brilliant uh, illustration of that. Because, of course, in the 18th century, handguns were expensive. Uh, they constituted less than 10% of the kinds of guns people owned. They weren't absolutely essential to the militia. So the idea that that's the quintessential Second Amendment weapon is, is sort of hard to uh, take seriously as a historical matter. So I would, say, I would say this. First of all, there was actually, if you include anti-federalists and if you include the very clear disagreement between James Madison and Elbridge uh, Gerry, uh, who, of course, was an anti-federalist sitting in Congress. There was some pretty vocal debate in Congress over the Second Amendment. The issue that Gary and Madison were debating was whether or not there should be an exemption for conscientious objectors. And, of course, the notion of a conscientious objector uh, implies a kind of militia uh, interpretation of the Second Amendment because the government can't compel you to exercise the natural right of self-defense. The only thing the government could really compel you is to... Uh, exercise the right uh, and the duty to bear arms. That's why in the first state constitutions, we have not only a right to bear arms, there's also a right not to be forced to bear arms. So they're they're paired off against one another. Uh, and I also think that fundamentally, Heller gets almost everything wrong. It really is uh, uh, a kind of tortured analysis. It, uh, the, the point about handguns is really a living constitution argument. It's that most Americans love these, so we can't outlaw them. That has nothing to do with originalism as far as I can tell. And, you know, I think that what the balancing argument, of course, comes in the dissent by Justice Breyer. It's a very persuasive argument, but it's, of course, not what uh, Justice Scalia himself uh, advocated in Heller. So Heller really is an intellectual mess. And even if you agreed with the holding, I think, uh, it's hard to argue that it's a clean, logical, helpful opinion to the courts, because we've had over a thousand cases, and and we've had many distinguished federal judges say, you know, I can't really figure out what's in and what's out based on the Heller criteria. So uh, I I quite agree with Nelson that that, that this is an opinion 
that's that's an intellectual mess. Thanks for that. Well, um, courts have nevertheless applied Heller as they must as uh, inferior courts. And in the wake of Heller, courts have considered bans on the kind of weapons that are now uh, being discussed uh, today, including uh, assault weapons. Uh, several state assault weapons bans have been upheld in federal court, including those in D.C., New York, and Connecticut, and Chicago. Uh, ammunition, at least one circuit court has found that ammunition is constitutionally protected. That's in the Ninth Circuit's views. Without bullets, the right to bear arms would be meaningless. And concealed weapons, there's a case called Wren versus District of Columbia, where the D.C. officials decided not to appeal a court order blocking enforcement of the city's restrictions on carrying concealed guns in public on the theory that they might lose. Nelson, um, are most of these decisions uh, correct in your view or not uh, when it comes to assault weapons, ammunition, and uh, concealed carry? Uh, well, most of them are incorrect, but let me let me back up for a second um, on this point about debate about the Second Amendment during the founding period. Um, there certainly was a debate about what the Second Amendment should say in Congress, um, and if you actually follow the drafting history carefully, you find that as the as the as the bill was going through Congress, it became the language became increasingly focused on uh, clarifying that it was individual right. My point earlier was that once the Second Amendment was drafted, passed by Congress, and sent to the states, there was no debate about it uh, during the ratification. So if we're talking about what the Second Amendment means, it's not very relevant what people in Congress who wanted to say something else thought it should say when we're asking what it does say. Now, with respect to the case law in the, uh, in the, in the, in the courts since Heller and McDonald, which was the one that applied the, uh, the Second Amendment or the right to keep and burn to the states, um, it, it, it's pretty consistently deferring to legislatures. There are a few exceptions, uh, but pretty consistently. Um, there are also, in uh, many of the major cases, dissents uh, from this very deferential uh, view toward legislatures. And when you look at all these opinions and go back to Heller, what becomes clear, I think, is that Heller is just exquisitely equivocal on so many questions that were bound to come up later. And that's why we're seeing uh, this kind of uh, apparent, uh, apparent almost near unanimity in the lower courts that Heller doesn't mean much of anything, that most laws are going to be upheld, together with some very vigorous and and carefully reasoned dissents from that view uh, by a lot of judges. And Heller's written in such a way as to allow both sides on these issues to make plausible arguments, uh, in some cases strong arguments, because the opinion is not just an intellectual mess, as Saul and I agree about, but I think it's an exquisitely equivocal opinion that was bound to generate uh, the kind of confusion in the, in the lower courts that, that we've seen. Um, presumably, uh, the, the Supreme Court will eventually uh, take on uh, another case that will provide more clarity about which way Heller is going to be interpreted to lean, but we haven't had that yet. Thanks for that. Saul, do you believe that most of these post-Heller decisions have been correct to be different, deferential to gun control regulation? Uh, why are we not? And, and, and what do you think the next big Supreme Court case might involve? 
Well, I think the first thing to note is that there's such a lax regulatory regime in America, and the political process in America ensures that most gun laws are fairly minimally intrusive to gun owners. Uh, it's important to remember, for instance, before Heller was decided, there were over 300 million guns in, in private ownership. So one could hardly say that the Second Amendment or Heller was essential to protect gun rights. Gun rights were pretty healthy in America. Uh, and of course, the NRA and other gun rights organizations are among the most effective uh, forces in American politics. So the fact that um, most gun laws on the books have survived challenge, I think, is is less that the courts are being overly deferential. It's just that the political process only yields fairly minimal kinds of regulation. So given that fact, uh, it's not surprising that most regulations have actually been upheld. I think that probably uh, we're either going to see a Wren-like challenge on good cause requirements, or we'll see a challenge to one of these uh, assault weapons bans. Those seem to me the two most likely uh, fact patterns and scenarios that'll come before the court. And it's really hard to read the tea leaves, uh, particularly because the tea leaves in this case will, uh, like they usually do, have a lot to do with Anthony Kennedy, assuming that a, a case can make it to him in time. Thanks so much for that. Nelson, if the court were to take an assault weapons ban case, how do you think it would decide it and how should it decide it? I often tell learners about your comment on the interactive constitution separate statement that a ban on assault weapons is like calling french fries freedom fries because there's no distinct class of assault weapons that can be identified so tell our listeners more about that well the the statutes that uh, ban or severely restrict these uh, are all based on cosmetic criteria um you know it's some sometimes called the ugly gun uh, uh rule um these are these are semi-automatic weapons that are made to that look like fully automatic machine guns, but are not. They don't operate any differently than normal, many normal, uh, many normal rifles, and a large percentage of normal handguns. Um, so it's really the, I think these laws are kind of a publicity stunt or political grandstanding. And um, while it's true that I think they don't have really serious effects, uh, practical effects on people's ability to uh, exercise their their inherent right of self-defense. It's also the case that in other areas, such as free speech, uh, the courts just don't allow the government to infringe on rights, even if it's not a really big deal as a practical matter, uh, for these kinds of arbitrary reasons, and I don't think they should do so here. Um, the cases on concealed carry um, are a very different matter. Um, preventing people from carrying a weapon outside their homes is a very, very serious infringement on their basic right to self-defense. It completely eliminates the right to bear arms, which is protected by the Second Amendment. It's a very serious matter, um, and I think the, the, the courts have upheld it have been made and made a very serious mistake. And if, if the Supreme Court does not correct that mistake that the lower courts have been making uh, in most of the cases, uh, then I think we'll know that the um, that that the right to keep and bear arms is regarded by the court as kind of like the Commerce Clause, um, where there's like one exception to what Congress can't do. 
um, but they can do everything else. So now we can say, well, there's one exception. Uh, if that turns out to be what the court does, they will have essentially read the Second Amendment out of the Constitution. Thanks for that. Saul, your views on the constitutionality of bans on assault weapons and concealed carry laws were the court to decide it. How should it decide it, and how do you think it uh, would decide it? Well, of course, uh, the, the assault weapons issue is is complicated because if one is looking at uh, sort of ballistic definitions versus uh, behavioral definitions, I mean, for instance, even if uh, uh, a so-called assault weapon or modern sporting rifle, which, whichever term you want to use, um, there's no question that, that those kinds of weapons have a particular appeal to, to people like Adam Lanza. And so uh, the fact that even if it were true, and there's considerable debate among policy experts that we're talking about cosmetic features, it's not like the cosmetics industry isn't one of the biggest industries in America, and Americans take cosmetic matters very seriously. So uh, even if it were true that it was only cosmetic, uh, that still would not uh, negate the fact that uh, the government might have an interest in not allowing large numbers of people to have these kind of weapons. Uh, as far as the right to carry in public, it turns out that uh, we've got a tradition stretching back to Edward III of limiting uh, armed carrying in uh, populous areas. Uh, and it's really only in the slave South and in the sort of recent uh, gun rights movement's effort to pass these concealed carry laws that we have this new right that's been created, a right to carry arms in public. That's never uh, been a right in Anglo-American law. And so it's, it's ironic that originalists, including Nelson, would think that it's a fundamental constitutional right because it's wholly invented. It, it did not exist in the founding era. Nelson, I'm sure you want to, I'm sure you want to respond. Please do yeah, respond to that. I, I just, that's, in my opinion, based on a misinterpretation of the statute in Northumberland. It's not the way that statute was interpreted in, in America, and that's, I just think, a historical mistake. Nelson, let me also ask you what you think about the constitutionality of restrictions on uh, so-called bump stocks, which uh, Congress is considering. If Congress passes the restriction, would it violate the Second Amendment or not? Um, I doubt it. Um, I doubt it would. I, I doubt it would, and I'm quite certain that it would not be struck down by the courts. Um, Heller made it perfectly clear that it regards um, uh, bans on machine guns as perfectly okay. I uh, didn't give any analysis for that, but it just, you know, asserted it. Um, but it was quite clear in, in the Heller opinion. And the bump stocks, to the extent, and I'd never heard of them before this latest uh, massacre, um, as I understand it, they uh, enable uh, a semi-automatic weapon to function like a fully automatic machine gun or very much like it. And I have no doubt that the courts would uphold that. And I doubt that uh, anybody is going to get uh, too worked up uh, over such uh, regulations. As I understand it, even the NRA has said um, that they're comfortable with having, having that regulated. I just don't think that's going to turn out to be a, a big issue. If I could just ask one more beat, do you think that the court should have held restrictions on bump stocks, and what analysis would you use in upholding them? Yeah, I, I think probably so. Um, and, you know, I don't like being asked to, like, uh, opine on complicated legal questions without being able to do a full analysis. Um, but the analysis that I think courts should use uh, on questions like that um, uh, basically involves um, 
what they do with other rights like those under the First Amendment. And, of course, under the First Amendment, they, they perform a good faith uh, analysis of whether the core purpose uh, of the First Amendment is is being threatened uh, by various regulations. And obviously there are thousands and thousands of regulations that come before the courts in the First Amendment area. I think they should do the second, the same thing in the Second Amendment, and they should perform that, that analysis in good faith the way I think they generally do in the First Amendment area, and not with a presumption like the one that uh, that Justice Breyer uh, used in his Heller dissent that basically says, well, we presume that, that whatever the government wants to do is okay, uh, but we'll do a little cost-benefit analysis, and as long as it's not a completely close question, I mean, a completely lopsided question in favor of the of the person claiming the right, uh, we'll just uphold what the government uh, wants to do. I think that that's a mistake in the Second Amendment, just as it would be a mistake in the First Amendment. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Saul, same question to you. If Congress passes bump stock restrictions, uh, do you think courts would uphold them and should they uphold them? And what analysis do you think they should use? Well, I think they most certainly would uphold them. And I would uh, say that uh, they'd probably apply the similar kinds of uh, tests that have emerged in the post-Heller jurisprudence. But I do think it's a mistake to analogize the First and Second Amendments. If you look at the history of both of those amendments, uh, uh, the Second Amendment was always subject to a range of prior restraints that would never have been permissible on the First Amendment. And, uh, you know, mo through most of American history, the Second Amendment and guns in general were just treated as property, which could be regulated uh, under states' police powers. So I don't know why one would analogize words and guns. They're, they're really two very different kinds of things. Uh, you know, the government is supposed to be neutral about words, but from the very beginning, the government was never neutral about guns. They actually told Americans what gun was needed to uh, to be purchased in order to meet their militia obligations. So there's, and it's, it was the first unfunded federal mandate. You could be required to buy your militia gun and you were not compensated. So, you know, I think it's a kind of natural tendency because lawyers uh, have a big body of First Amendment jurisprudence, but there's no intellectually compelling reason except that it would be easy to poach from that uh, body of jurisprudence to think that there's any uh, connection between the First and Second Amendment in terms of the, the proper way to uh, interpret uh, the balance between liberty and order. Nelson, your response to that? Well, uh, no analogy is perfect, and this one certainly isn't perfect either. I mean, uh, what 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 I was referring to was a general attitude about what kind of analysis should be applied, and it should be an analysis that um, that respects the importance of something that was actually put into the Constitution and try to protect, as best the courts can, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the purpose of, of foster the purpose of, of putting that in by uh, using, an, using an analysis that gives a presumption in favor of the rights claimer, or the rights claimant, not the government. It was put into to limit the government, and uh, that doesn't mean that everything is everything is permitted or it's an absolute right, that kind of silliness no serious person would believe. Uh, but, but, the, but the analogy is quite strong between the First Amendment and the Second Amendment in the way that I've just framed it. Many thanks for that. 
All right. Uh, after the Las Vegas shootings, Brett Stevens in The New York Times wrote a much commented on article called Repeal the Second Amendment. Uh, a conservative pundit, uh, Stevens, said, I've never understood the conservative fetish for the Second Amendment. From a personal safety standpoint, more guns mean less safety. From a national security standpoint, the suggestion that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state is quaint. And from a personal liberty standpoint, the idea an armed citizenry is the ultimate check on the ambitions of government is curious. Saul, given your belief that the Second Amendment properly construed should allow most of the uh, restrictions that are on the table from assault weapons bans to concealed carry in the bump stock, is it necessary to repeal the Second Amendment? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I would say the Second Amendment is perhaps one of the most discussed amendments uh, in modern America, but one of the least well understood. I think that when you look at the Second Amendment, whether you look at it historically or you look at it jurisprudentially, there's plenty of room for regulation. And I think it's important to note that we're not talking about the government regulating, we're talking about we the people acting through our representatives. I mean, setting it up as the government versus liberty ignores the fact that we the people have a liberty interest in not uh, having a, a society awash with guns that are not properly regulated. That's a legitimate, uh, the most fundamental liberty of all liberties that emerged out of the American Revolution and the Constitution protects is the liberty of the people to legislate uh, their own laws. So I'm not sure that I, although it's a good debating point, I don't see things as quite the government versus individual liberty. It's really a question of uh, the liberties of people who want to live in a non-anarchic society versus the liberties of those who prefer anarchy to, uh, to regulation. Many thanks for that. Uh, Nelson, you did write a response to Brett Stevens uh, in uh, on the Liberty Law site, and you made a number of uh, interesting points, including what would a, repealing the Second Amendment accomplish, given the fact that before 2008, the court hadn't much enforced it. And you also say that uh, you call curious his failure to acknowledge that personal liberty is protected by the Second Amendment and primarily threatened by criminals in our midst rather than by the government. Uh, do you think uh, we should uh, repeal the Second Amendment? And if not, why not? Well, obviously, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> obviously, I don't think so. Um, uh, and uh, that doesn't mean I'm a proponent of anarchy. Um, and uh, I think it is perfectly fair to talk about laws uh, that are being enforced by the government as the government against the individual who um, uh, who's claiming that those laws are unconstitutional. I don't think there's anything odd about that. Uh, the courts strike down laws that were voted for by the people all the time uh, when they're enforcing the Constitution. I don't think that's uh, that's uh, putting us on the verge of anarchy by any means. So um, if we have a gun control problem in the U.S., is it primarily due to the fact that the courts are striking regulations down or the fact that legislature, legislatures aren't passing meaningful regulations in the first place? Well, it's a complicated story, I think. But I think if you look, for instance, what has happened since Newtown. So we have paralysis at the federal level. But then, of course, uh, we've had paralysis at the federal level across a broad range of issues. It's hardly just guns. Uh, and of course, American attitudes towards Congress are at an all-time low in terms of approval ratings. But if we look at what's happening in the states, it's interesting. Uh, basically, uh, if you look at it both in terms of numbers and in terms of population, so after Newtown, many states, more states actually loosen their gun laws uh, and, and states tighten their gun laws. But if you look at population, it's about equal. So fundamentally, after Newtown, half the American population 
wanted stronger gun laws and half the American population wanted weaker gun laws. So this strikes me as a, a great time and a great opportunity for conservatives who for years and years were, were telling us about the, the wonders of federalism uh, to actually recognize that federalism may be the only viable way forward in dealing with uh, gun issues because we have very distinctive regional gun cultures and uh, our federal system may be better positioned to accommodate those differences than a sort of strong nationalist uh, effort to enact one size fits all. I mean, the one exception to that, of course, gun markets and illegal guns uh, move through commercial means across state lines. But there's no question that the, the laws that would be appropriate about carrying guns in Alaska would need to be different than the laws that we enact in New York, because uh, carrying a gun in the Bronx is very different than carrying it in Montana or Alaska. So I sort of wish that we had seen uh, people on the right who were such great champions of federalism take up the gun issue and use it as a means to win over liberals who were sometimes skeptical of federalism. And that would have been a really interesting, creative development in our constitutional discourse. But sadly, it hasn't happened. Nelson, what do you think of Saul's call for Second Amendment federalism, and how do you think state legislatures are behaving post-Heller? Do you approve of the regulations they're passing or not? Uh, well, I think there certainly is something to be said as a matter of, a lot to be said as a matter of constitutional design for uh, limiting the intrusion of uh, the federal government, whether in, in the form of Congress or in the form of federal courts, uh, into the activities of the police powers of the states. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, the Supreme Court made a decision a long time ago that we weren't going to have that kind of country. Now, if those who want to uh, use this kind of federalism argument with respect to the Second Amendment are serious, then they should apply it to the rest of the Bill of Rights, too, including the First Amendment, not to mention all of the other rights and intrusions on the police power that the federal that the federal courts, the Supreme Court, is made up out of nothing, like the right to abortion, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to sodomy, etc. If you want to leave all of that stuff to the states, um, that would require a major change in our political culture as well as our legal culture. But there's a lot to be said for that as a matter of constitutional design. Many thanks for that. Well, I think it is time for closing statements in this absolutely fascinating debate, which began with a really rigorous mooting of the historical uh, conceptions and then applied, talked about the Heller case and then applied uh, your different conceptions to post-Heller regulations. So I think, uh, Saul, the, the closing question for our listeners as compactly and intensely as you can give it is, uh, does the Second Amendment impose a constitutional barrier to the kinds of gun regulations that the states and Congress are likely to pass or not? No, I don't think the Second Amendment provides much of a barrier. I think the constraints on enacting better laws to deal with the problems that guns pose in contemporary America are all political. Uh, I wish that we would have a much calmer, more deliberative debate. Uh, I wish that we would be able to talk honestly. I wish we could, talking about First Amendment, I wish we would actually fund the CDC to do more research um, and I wish we had better targeted, more precise kinds of policies, but it's very hard to develop those policies without data. And we've actually uh, made it very difficult to do research on this topic, which I think is a great tragedy. Many thanks for that. Uh, Nelson, last word to you. 
does the Second Amendment impose a constitutional barrier to the kinds of gun regulations that Congress and the states uh, are passing and are likely to pass or not? Well, it certainly poses, in my view, opposes a serious barrier to some uh, of the existing gun regulations and um, um, uh, and some, the, the, not not all of them. Um, so I think it, it, it does what the First Amendment does. That respect, uh, the First Amendment poses a barrier to some kinds of restriction on speech, not to others. There are all kinds, lots of exceptions uh, to the to the ban on uh, the First Amendment's ban on the regulation of speech. Um, it's true that uh, the main obstacle to uh, new gun control laws of a very onerous uh, nature uh, come from the people who won't support legislators that pass them in most in, in lots of areas of the country and certainly in Congress. Um, that's that was true while, even for a long time, even while. The Supreme Court treated the Second Amendment as a dead letter. Um, so I, I think it, it would be a mistake for people who believe, as I do, that most of these gun control laws are either ineffectual or counterproductive um, to place too much of their faith in the courts. Um, the main thing that will protect our rights, I believe, in this area is not the courts, but uh, public opinion. And public opinion has generally been moving in the direction that I think is a healthy direction for several decades. I hope that I hope that that continues. Thank you so much, Nelson Lund and Saul Cornell, for a really illuminating, uh, substantive, and extremely civil discussion of perhaps our most hotly contested uh, constitutional debate. Uh, Nelson, Saul, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. And if you're still listening to the credits at this point, we're thinking of doing some shorter versions of these podcasts, edits of, you know, constitutional uh, uh, education of about 10 minutes each. Do you think that'd be useful? Write to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, uh, to let me know. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to see the videos, go to constitutioncenter.org and to our website and check out uh, the videos of all of our phenomenal public programs, which are here in Philadelphia and around the country. On that score, the Constitution Center is now offering continuing legal education credits for select America's town hall programs. In-person credits now available in Pennsylvania with more states to come. Uh, for all of you lawyers who need to take continuing legal education credit, can there possibly be a more fun, exciting, and educational way of doing it than watching National Constitution Center programs? I don't think so. So go and check out our debate tab on the website. Go to upcoming programs for more information and stay tuned for On Demand courses. And of course, be sure to rate the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. That's why we need to do programs like continuing education to create the earned revenue that's necessary to keep the Constitution Center going. 
But we're most importantly a philanthropic educational institution. This place has an educational mission that's so important. It's to educate all Americans about the Constitution with these podcasts and with the interactive Constitution and on every media platform. Everything we're doing is feeding to reinforce this central mission of constitutional education. And I need your support and engagement. I just want you to go and become a member so you can join and signify your passion for constitutional education. Go to the website constitutioncenter.org and sign up. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.